Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. This episode, we're looking at the life of Nehemiah. You can read the story in Nehemiah chapter 1. And who was Nehemiah, Mike? <laughs> He's described as a cupbearer to the king. So we need to know what a cupbearer is and who the king was. So Nehemiah was almost certainly born in exile. Remember, in the overview of history we've seen in previous episodes, Israel, the northern tribes, first of all, have been exiled, scattered in 721 BC, scattered to the wind, never to come together again. Judah, the southern tribes, have been exiled in 586 BC, this time by Babylon. But rather than being scattered, kept together in clear pockets so their faith and identity was allowed to be kept. Babylon itself had been conquered by Persia under King Cyrus. And King Cyrus had had a very different policy of allowing conquered peoples to go back home. Partly because he thought a happy people will be a contented people and less trouble for me. Partly because he wanted them to build temples in their land. No doubt trying to keep his eye in and hand in with all the different gods. Mm. So he allows them to go back in 538 BC. There'd been that first return of Jews, not many of them, only 50,000 or so, many had actually stayed in exile. Why is that? Why, why did they not all go back when they had the chance? Yeah, good question, isn't it? I think we can probably understand that because um, they settled down. I mean, many of them had been there the 70 years that Jeremiah had promised. There'd been two little earlier waves of exiles before the main one in 586 BC. But if you'd been there 50, 60, 70 years, you know, you've settled down, you've had kids, you've had grandkids, you've had to find a job, you've had to build a house, you've had to find a school. We all know how difficult schools are to find these days, if you're thinking of moving. And all these practical considerations <laughs> meant that, frankly, they weren't that keen on going back. And remember, those who'd been born in exile in Persia knew nothing else. Why on earth would they want to give up a comfortable life for a life back in this scrappy country, miles away, a thousand mile journey away that they'd never even seen. So it was really hard. And yeah, only about 50,000 went back, were able to rebuild the temple. And, it, and it's not until another 60 years later that another wave goes back with that character Ezra that we looked at in a previous episode. So um, Nehemiah, so Nehemiah is, is a Jew who, who was able to go back. Nehemiah was a Jew who in theory was able to go back, but wasn't because of his job. Right. So I mentioned earlier about him being a cupbearer. So when all the these others had chosen to go back, that choice really wasn't open to him. Why? Because of his position. He's cupbearer to the king of Persia. Now, yeah. what's a cupbearer? Indeed. I can see you were going to ask me that question, weren't you? <laughs> A cupbearer did exactly what it says on the tin. He bore the cup. He carried the cup. But with that went also the responsibility that he was the wine taster. The main way of killing off kings and rulers in the ancient world was, believe it or not, poisoning. Hmm. 
So having a cupbearer, a wine taster, whom you trusted implicitly was really, really important. So Nehemiah is this cupbearer to the Persian king. So he's got a pretty lofty position, pretty good position. But as the trusted cupbearer, the king's not going to be keen to let him go. And we know from Persian documents that cupbearers were often seen as confidants of the king. I mean, if, if you can trust this guy with your life, it's not a big step to say, what do you think about this? Because he's with you there all the time, tasting your food, tasting your wine. So he's now, although a Jew, born a Jew, never seen the homeland himself. He was born in exile. And he's a Persian royal official, a palace official with a very esteemed, very high place. So really, going back just wasn't on the cards at all for him. But he's Jewish by birth. Yeah, because he's born from Jewish parents. But he's sort of part of the Persian empire, if you like, in that sense. Yeah, he's part of the structure there. And he's found himself a job. I mean, that we could almost have a sermon on that himself. He clearly won a place. Although he was a Jew and known to have been a Jew, he's found a faithful place of service amongst this pagan king who has come to trust him implicitly. implicitly. What, what a, a powerful picture for us serving well in our workplace, even if our boss isn't a Christian. So saw life in the royal court and therefore saw how people related to one another, how things were organised, how decisions were made, all of that, uh, which I guess, you know, was part and parcel of, of who he was. So so he, he returns then, does he, with, with a group of exiles to their, their homeland? He does, but how he returns is a really exciting part of the story, which we find in, in Nehemiah chapter one. So he's on duty one day serving the wine to the king when a uh, some messengers arrive back from the homeland and uh, they send a message through his brother Hanani and say, hey, we've got some messengers who brought some news back from the homeland and it's pretty disturbing. And in the next few minutes, Nehemiah's life will be completely turned around because they, they come and they give him a report and they say, look, things are not going well for those who've returned, those people who've gone back with uh, Ezra previously. They're in great trouble. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And suddenly God's got him. I mean, God uses the most strange things at times to get our hearts and get our attention. And it says that when he heard this, he sat down and wept. And for days, he mourns and fasts and prays to God. Something has got his heart for this city that he's obviously heard about, been taught about as a boy, it's been ingrained in him. He's never seen it, he's never been there, and his heart is broken as he hears this devastated state that it's in, and the people are therefore having to live in. And so he, he prays to God, and he he cries out to God to, to do something. And and I, I love the, uh, the little bit towards the end of his prayer. And he says, God, please grant me success today. Yeah, and there's a real faith. But clearly we know it's not today because it's for many days he sat down and prayed and fasted. And in fact, as we get to chapter two, there's some time pointers in both chapter one and chapter two. And what we find is chapter two is four months later. So for four months, 
This guy has been praying and fasting and seeking God about a city that he's heard about that's got into his heart, but that he's never seen. Clearly, you know, it it bore heavily on him because in chapter two, we find him going into the presence of the king to serve him with wine. And the king suddenly says, "Um, Nehemiah, why are you looking sad? And suddenly, I think fear must have come upon Nehemiah. Because he can't afford to look sad. In can't the afford presence. to look sad in the presence of his majesty. In fact, there's some evidence in Persian documents that it could even be a capital offence in some circumstances to look sad in the presence of the king. So he's he's caught out. But I, I often imagine him at this moment thinking, I've been praying for four months mm. And here's my moment, but the moment's not when I thought it was going to be. I don't know about you, but when I'm praying about things, I often plan in my mind how it will be, and then I'll do this, and then we'll do that, and then I'll be able to say this. And then God catches me by the side, and it comes a different way, and that happens here. He's caught out unawares, but the prayer that he's been putting into it makes it possible for him to start to unfold what he wants with the king. But you know what, David? He is so wise. He does not start by saying, well, the thing is, your majesty, I've had news and I want to go back and help rebuild this city. Rather, he says, your majesty, how can I not look sad? Because the city where my ancestors is buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. He appeals to something the king would understand, a sense of shame that's so important in the Middle East to this day. Shame that my ancestors have not got a proper burial. They're buried in a city that is a ruin, and I feel ashamed, Your Majesty. And it's it's, it's a great evangelistic tool, this, isn't it? He looks for that point of connection Hmm. with the king, and instantly the king says, how can I help you? And suddenly the way is cleared, and Nehemiah fires off this quick prayer to heaven, quick arrow prayer. And clearly he's used these four months wisely, not just to pray, but also to think, because he says, well, your majesty, you know, this is what I need. I'd like you to send me back. And the king says, what do you need? And he's got it all planned. He said, well, you know, I'll need letters of authority and I'll need some help and I'll need provisions. It's all there. And he's praying and thinking for these four months is all ready now. And the king, amazingly, the king who shut down the work in the first place, you know, there were a lot of opposition that we read about in some of the other books. And it had been this king who'd stopped the rebuilding of the walls in the first place. Here's Nehemiah now saying, Your Majesty, can you please send me back to undo what you just said ought not to be done? I'm just picking up on what you said about those four months. You know, sometimes we use that phrase, let's sleep on it. If you've got a big decision to make, and that might just mean thinking about it overnight and then making a snap decision the next day. Four months is a long time. It is a long time, isn't it? I think it's interesting. It wasn't his choice. Um, He didn't think, oh, yeah, God really wants me to pray and fast for four months about this. He's just moved by what he's seen and gives himself to starting praying and fasting. It turns out to be four months. But I think what it does show us is that sometimes, you know, sometimes God answers a prayer just in a moment. One throwaway prayer and God has moved. And other times... God wants us to seek him and spend time until he's seen our heart and how committed we are to something. And then suddenly, I often find that in the Bible, 
you know, things move slowly, but then when God moves, it suddenly happens. In fact, here's an interesting thing you could do. Look up the word suddenly in a concordance and see how many times it occurs in the Bible. Think, for example, of the day of Pentecost. They were all gathered together in one place when suddenly a mm. sound like a mighty wind came from heaven. Mm. And they'd been waiting those days, 10 days since Jesus's ascension. And so it's important that, yeah, when we're praying, we're ready because that suddenly could come at any moment. Mm. So this moment has come now for Nehemiah. Unbelievably, he's got the go-ahead from this pagan king to go back. He's got the go-ahead. The king grants him his request. Lovely little line here. Nehemiah says, because the gracious hand of God was upon me. It doesn't say because I've been a good servant, because I was clever with my words. He puts the praise where it belongs, right back to God. And so off he sets with his uh, letter of authorization, his mandate for the task. Um, he's got a few soldiers of the king, which must have helped as well. And so the first place he comes to is the Trans-Euphrates. That's the area to the east of the Jordan. You know, there are officials there who are wanting to know why he's coming and what he's doing. But a quick wave of the king's mandate means that he arrives there. And so we read, so I arrived in Jerusalem, covers everything that must have taken how long did the journey take? It probably took, with all those soldiers and the equipment he would have been taking, probably another four months to make that journey. Mm. And it would have been a pretty arduous journey. Mm. Mm. And so, an emotional journey, of course. Very emotional. And I think through it all, remember, he's never been there. He's not seen it. He must have been thinking, what am I going back to? Which is why we go on to read in chapter two, one of the first things he does is well, having had a three-day rest, is then to go out by night and to look. Why a three-day rest? Well, obviously, I imagine he was pretty tired. But it's interesting that, you know, in Jewish thinking, the number three had quite a lot of significance. Numbers are often used symbolically in Judaism, the number 12 for the number of the people of God, the number 10 for completion. And three, often symbolised in Jewish thinking, God's might and power. Because when you think about it, there are quite a few things happening in the Bible on the third day. Mm. Jonah is spewed out of the whale on the third day. And of course, Christ is raised from the dead on the third day. Why the third day? Why didn't Christ raise a second after he'd conquered Satan and sin? He could have done, but no, he waits for the third day. Why? Because in Jewish thinking, Stuff that happens on the third day is all about God. This is God at work. And I think it was Nehemiah's conscious decision. Yes, he probably needed to rest, but I think it was his way of saying, God, by waiting till day three, your day of action and power, I'm making clear to you, I can't do this. If you don't come and help me, I may have all the letters and all the wood in the world, but this needs you, God. So the third day came. But you said he went out on a sort of secret nighttime mission. Yes, he does. You know, he's trusting of God, uh, but he also uses his brain and he thinks things through. And he's very aware that not everybody will want the walls rebuilding. Not everyone wants a strong Jerusalem. You know, the nations to north and south and east will not want a new strong Jerusalem. So he knows there's going to be opposition. 
So what he does is he just takes a few men and, and goes out by night and and he starts to go around the walls on his donkey, picking his way along, uh, works in an anti-clockwise direction. But by the time he's he's got round to sort of the northeast side, he gives up and comes home. Why? Because there's nothing to see. Because <laughs> invasions of Jerusalem were always from the north. Mm because there were valleys around the other side. So by the time he's got to the sort of northeast corner, north, he knows there's no point continuing. He doesn't need to do his secret reconnoiter, because that's what he's doing. Mm, a bit of a recce. And he's seen enough. He's seen enough now to know what's involved. Remember, all he's had is a report. He's never seen this place with his own eyes. And I think he's now got to come to terms himself with, you know, what's actually involved. It, you know, in many ways, it's easy to say, yes, God, I'll do it. And then you have to face up to, oh, crikey, what does that mean there? Because mm. he'd had a sort of general report sent to him when he was in Babylon about the walls that were broken down. But this was now the detail that he was seeing. Yeah, he now needed to know which walls, which stone, which gates. What is this going to involve? Who's going to do it? And so that's why he does this secret reconnoiter. So he's got all the information at hand ready for when he gathers the city officials the next day. And so there's got to be some sort of strategy. Absolutely. And he does have strategy. And this is, again, where he's a man who seeks God in prayer, but is not afraid of strategy and seeing it as something opposite. That strategy comes out the end of chapter two. First strategy is to win over all the leaders, to tell them what God has done and to get everyone to say yes. In other words, he gets buy-in. It's no good having a vision yourself if you're a leader unless you can somehow inspire others and get buy-in to what you believe God is saying. So he gets that in chapter two. Then in chapter three, they actually start the work. And here comes the real strategy. He divides the wall up into sections and he gives different sections to different people. And the interesting thing is they're all named. So chapter three is a bit of a tough passage when you're reading the Bible because there's lots <laughs> of long names. But it itemizes who built what from where to where, from this tower to that tower, from this corner to that corner. And what he does is he, so first of all, breaks it up into manageable chunks. He doesn't say, David, I need you to rebuild the wall for me. He says, David, do you know what? Do you think you could have faith to rebuild from there to there with your family and your clan? And he makes it bite-sized. Mm. Great leadership skill there, isn't it? Mm. And people say, yes. And they do this. One of the phrases that keeps recurring is side by side, next to him, so-and-so did it, next to him, so-and-so did it, mm. next to him. So you're getting a sense here that there's also relationship as well as planning. This is, this is recognizing the need for all of us to work together. I'll do my bit, but I really need you next to me to do your bit. Mm. And the even more clever bit of strategy is that he gets people to rebuild the bit of the wall opposite their own houses. Ah, so they've got a sense of ownership. And so again, very clever, very wise. He gets buy-in and he helps people to see, listen, there's vested interests in you doing this. You know, Sometimes you're almost a bit afraid of, of, of doing that in the kingdom of God, of saying to people, Listen, yeah, that you get something out of this. So do others. You're not just doing it for you, but yeah, you'll get blessed. Come and serve. You'll get blessed as you do that. So tremendous strategy. And it's well worth reading chapter three and pushing through some of those long names. 
In fact, I love how those long names are added in. Who did all the work? Because what that reminds us is when you do something for God, your name is noted. You know, the book of Revelation at the end talks about, at the end, God will open up the books and everything that we've done is written in it and recorded. Thankfully, that's not the basis of our salvation. Faith in Jesus is the basis of salvation. But this is the basis of our rewards, what responsibilities we have in the future kingdom. And there in that book, every single thing that you have ever done for God, for someone else is noted down. And I always love saying to people, you know what? When you do something and no one's remembered to say thank you, just remember this. God saw it. God wrote it in heaven. And that's what's happening in this book. Every person who took part, their name, the name of their, at least their family clan, their leader, is written down in the book. It got noted and was appreciated. So credit where credit's due. And Nehemiah then didn't just get all the glory. Yes, in fact, he really seems to take a back seat. He doesn't push himself forward at all in any of this story. Remember, he's been appointed by the king of Persia as governor of Judea. This is a pretty high-powered position, but he never takes advantage of that. He never wants his name. He doesn't ask for a dedication stone to remember who it was who did this. As we get towards the end of the story, we'll find he doesn't even take what he could have taken as the governor all the support that could have naturally been his. This is a very self-effacing man. The only person he wants to remember what he's done is God. And so several times in this book, we find a little refrain coming, remember me, O God. And it's that little phrase that perhaps opens a little window into something of what Nehemiah was. We, we'd said that he'd been the cupbearer in the Persian palace. We know from Persian documents that most male servants, certainly in high positions in the palace, would have been made eunuchs. It's highly likely that that had happened. So he couldn't have children. Area. Couldn't have children, couldn't go into the temple that he was coming back to build walls for, to protect because the law forbade that. And probably that little echo every time of, remember me, O oh God, because... He would have no children to remember him. And in Jewish thinking, it was through your children, particularly, that you were remembered. So a very, very selfless guy who gave up so much. The, you know, the palace, a wonderful opportunity, wonderful life there. All that he had in exchange for the unknown and for serving God's people. Why? Because God had got his heart. How effective was this strategy, Ed of Interest? Because the walls had been in ruins for some time. There had been an attempt, had there not, to rebuild the walls. Yes, and it had stopped because some of both the local people who were opponents, but also some of these leaders of the nations round about, who remember all part of the Persian Empire, had objected to it. So how successful was it? I think pretty successful, because in Chapter 4, we get the story of opponents starting to think this has got to stop. So clearly it was proving effective or they wouldn't have done. So we read that Sam Ballot was very angry when he learned we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and he does a number of things. He starts with mockery and then the mockery becomes threat and then the threat becomes intimidation. But you know what? They just stick at it. And Nehemiah keeps them focused and he says, Lord, hear us. We're being mocked. May their mocking fall back onto their own head. 
And he just says to the folk, come on, let's get on with it. And, and so by chapter four, we're reading that at last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city for the people had worked with enthusiasm. And then there's more pushback from Samballot and from Tobiah, the Arab, and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites and other opponents, these people groups round about. And there's this constant threat trying to manipulate to get them to stop. But Nehemiah simply sticks at it. And again, it's very practical. So what he does when he hears all these rumours of threats is he divides his labour force into two and he has half of them working on rebuilding at a time and the other half standing with spears ready just in case at a time. And how quickly does the work get done? It's done amazingly quickly. They give themselves to rebuilding and the whole thing is completed in just 52 days. Not even two months? Not even two months. You can find that in chapter 6 where it says that in our dates on October the 2nd, the world was finished just 52 days after we had begun. That is absolutely incredible. <laughs> and when you think that northern part of the world had been utterly destroyed, there was nothing. All the gates had been burned with fire, so that meant all the beams and the posts needed taking out, replacing, gates rebuilding, as well as the building of the walls. It's interesting it goes on to note that their enemies realised this work had been done with the help of God. Somehow God gets glory out of this. So they were much safer again than ever they had been. Yes, because up to this point they'd been very exposed to any enemy that attacked them at all. And that had been Nehemiah's passion to ensure that the city was safe, that God's people were safe, that the temple was safe. As well as the sort of physical rebuilding, there must have been a kind of spiritual rebuilding of the people as well. Yes, and that's where Nehemiah knew how to be a team player. I mean, if you want any book of the Bible that's got some great principles for leadership, Nehemiah is it. You know, how to get people to do work they don't want to do, how to work in a team, you know, how to inspire people. And Nehemiah knew there were things that he just couldn't do, either by gifting or by nature or character or even lawfulness as far as God was concerned. And so in Nehemiah 8, what we find is him bringing Ezra onto the scene. Now, Ezra, we've looked at in a previous episode, but it was Nehemiah as the governor, the man who had the authority to do this, who did it. He realized that was something he could not do. As a eunuch, he couldn't have done it. He wasn't trained as a scribe. He knew his limitations. You know, a great leader knows what they can't do as well as what they can do. And Nehemiah was definitely one of those. And once he'd completed the task, did he stay? What happened? Well, eventually it looks like he went back. He has to deal with a little social issue before he does because he finds that there's been economic consequences of this period and people are getting into debt and people are charging interest. So he has to sort that out and get them in line with God's word. But it seems that he went back to Persia because the king had actually said to him, remember how the story starts? The king, the queen sitting with him said to me, how long will you be gone and what do you need? How long will you be gone? Implies this certainly wasn't going to be permanent. So after his first stint as governor, Yes, he has to go back to Persia around 433 BC, 
that's definitely when, in his absence, the Jews fall into some of these bad practices that I just mentioned that get even worse. And that leads to then what seems to be a second return visit as governor. He'd obviously heard what had gone on and had to say to the king again, your majesty, I think I really need to go back for a short visit to put things right. And you find that in chapter 13 of Nehemiah. And he was allowed to do that. But then when he'd been back the second time and sorted out those issues, he returned back to Persia? It looks like it, we aren't told. The story ends open-endedly, but almost certainly. Remember, this was a trusted, trusted advisor. And I think it's highly likely he had to go back again. It's interesting, isn't it? He put all his effort into that. And he never personally sort of got anything out of it. His serving leadership was all for the benefit of others and not for himself. But by his example, teamwork was made to happen and there was a significant impact on the people of God. Absolutely. Nehemiah played a really key role. And without him, who knows how the story would have turned out. Just one man who made himself available to God. Is that what you draw out of it? The fact that he did make himself available when he could have stayed in Persia and enjoyed all the comforts of that? Yeah, I think it's incredible. You know, we so easily read over scriptures quickly at times, but what Nehemiah must have given up, that comfort, you know, the room he had in the palace, the nice clothes, the the, the comfortable situation, he gives all of this up to become, it sounds grand, doesn't it, to become a governor, but Judea was a backwater province. I think the thing that I'm always left with with him is he made those sacrifices. Why? Because God had got his heart. Through that news and through his praying and fasting, God somehow got hold of his heart. And when God has got hold of your heart as a, about a project or something that he's calling you to do, you just can't rest until it's done. But the other thing I love about him is... Nehemiah is not one of these people who wanted a great name for himself. If he lived today, he wouldn't have a grand ministry named after him. He was just a guy who got on with what God gave him to do. Wanted nothing for himself, but wanted to be utterly available to God and was incredible at building teamwork and getting others to do it. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.